A DC-9 crashes with most of a university football team and staff and government officials on board. How did misinterpretation or incorrect instrumentation use cause this plane to fly into a hill miles from the airport? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. So today we're doing a listener recommendation again. Thanks for that. Thanks to Chris Sullivan for the recommendation on this one. Yeah, thanks. Via Facebook. The Facebook. The, the Facebook. Facebook. So you can Facebook message us recommendations. We do see them and we do take them seriously. Seriously? Seriously. Semi-seriously? Seriously. Seriously? All right. <laughs> Sweet Jesus. So this week we are covering uh, Southern Airways Flight 932. This took place on November 14th of 1970. It was a DC-9 with the tail number November 97 Sierra. It was a charter flight from Atlanta to Kinston, North Carolina, to Huntington, West Virginia. The airplane was then to continue on to Hopkinsville, Kentucky, and Alexandria, and Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Going all over. It was. It was a busy airplane. However, it was carrying the Marshall football team from West Virginia. Marshall University? Marshall University, yep. And as well as boosters, coaching staff, and a few other very important people. I think it had some fans aboard, too. It had, specifically. A city councilman, a state legislator, and four physicians were also on board. Jeez. Gotcha. Yeah. The captain for this flight was Frank H. Abbott. He was 47 years old. He had 18,557 hours total, of which 2,194 were on the DC-9. The first officer was Jerry Smith, who was 28. He had 5,872 hours total, with 1,196 hours on the DC-9. So both were relatively experienced, especially the captain with 18,000 hours. That's Jeez. pretty high. There were also two stewardess and an operations employee on board. The operations employee was assigned as a charter coordinator to travel with the airplane. And he was sitting in the cockpit. He was. The plane departed Atlanta at 3.48 p.m. and arrived at Kinston at 4.42 p.m., where it was to pick up the football team after a 17-14 loss against the East Carolina Pirates at Ficklin Stadium in Greenville, North Carolina. The aircraft was refueled while 70 passengers boarded for a total of 75 souls on board. Souls on board is an old term in aviation, but we still use it, and actually it's still very much used. In the case that an airplane declares an emergency, the air traffic control will ask for number of souls on board and fuel quantity. The flight began taxiing at 6.28 p.m. from the ramp, the captain had filed an instrument flight rules, or, inst or IFR, flight plan to Huntington at flight level 260, or 26,000 feet, with a true airspeed was of 473 knots for an estimated flight time of 52 minutes. The flight departed Kinston at 6.38 p.m. The flight was carried out as filed with no issues, but at 7.23 p.m., they established contact with Huntington Approach Control, saying, We're descending to 5,000. The air traffic controller cleared them for a localizer approach to runway 11, or 11, which had a limited ILS system or instrument landing system. So it's limited in that it only does lateral and no glide slope. So it will only help them track later laterally to the center line. It will not allow them, it will not give them any sort of uh, altitude, altitude vertical guidance. So altitude guidance to the runway. However, Approach plates give them that kind of information. So this was handled as a non-precision approach for this airport, as it always is. The air traffic control also advised that surface winds, quote, surface winds are favoring runway 29, 
350 degrees at 6, altimeter 2967, so 29.67. Um, altimeter, that reading just gives you pressure altitude, so that's how you would adjust your altimeter to make sure that your altimeter is giving you the correct data based on barometric pressure outside, which the crew acknowledged. The controller then advised, quote, hunting, Huntington weather 300 scattered, measured ceiling 500, variable broken 1100 overcast, visibility 5, light rain, fog, smoke, ceiling ragged, variable 4 to 600 feet. So that was a lot of things, and that's really confusing. But basically, they said weather at 300 feet above ground level, clouds are scattered. At 500 feet, there's a measured ceiling, which is where clouds are constant. At, and then variable and broken, that ceiling is variable and broken, however, but at 1,100 feet, they call for complete overcast. They said visibility was five miles with light rain, fog, smoke from a nearby refinery, and the ceiling was ragged and variable at 400 to 600 feet. At 7.33 p.m., the captain stated that he would fly the approach at 130 knots. The first officer responded and said that he was checking the time, and the approach should take them two minutes. At 7.34 p.m., the crew reported passing the outer marker, and they were clear to land. So the on the approach, there's an outer, and a middle, and an inner marker. All of them are very close to the runway, but they are points along the way, reference points along the way for speed, for altitude, and for visual references to the runway. However, they were doing an instrument approach through clouds and rain. They did not have a visual on the airport by that point. ATC reported wind 340 at 7 knots at that point. The crew requested step 3, to which ATC responded, Roger, that's where they are, with the rabbit. Advise when you want them to cut. The crew responded, very good. So the rabbit is a form of approach lighting that is a very fast strobe set of strobes that go in the direction of flight to I've the threshold that. of the runway. Yeah, to the threshold of the runway. They flash really fast to make it appear like a ball of light that's traveling to the end of the runway. It's a reference for pilots, especially traveling in fog, to help them find the end of the runway. They go, here, it's here, following the light. That's the rabbit. And when the crew responded, very good, that was the last time that they were heard from. At 7.36 p.m., the tower personnel observed a red glow west of the airport. The flight crew was not responding to any further calls by ATC, so the tower controller initiated the emergency procedures. Witnesses in the area generally agree that the airplane was low, but appeared normal. The tower controller was continuously watching for Southern Airways 932 after they reported the outer marker, but he never saw the plane, just the fire and the explosion from the crash. The aircraft impacted a small hill just one mile from the runway threshold. And actually, it was a little less than one mile. All on board perished. For a total of 75 perished. For the wreckage, some trees about 1,300 feet west of the main crash site were destroyed. The aircraft's first impact was with trees on a hill 5,543 feet west of the runway threshold for runway 11. So a little over a mile. That cut a swath 95 feet wide and 279 feet long through the trees on a bearing of 110, which would put them 122 feet to the right of the extended center line of the runway. So in other words, 122 feet right of being completely lined up with the runway. At an altitude of about 860 feet uh, mean sea level, so that's different than above the ground. That would be above what sea level would be normally. Yep. Several sections of the leading edge flaps, one trailing flap movable vane, and a flat track all from the right wing, as well as three sections from the ray dome, were found at the initial tree impact area. Because of that, the airplane had really poor aerodynamics. The main wreckage area was located at 4,219 feet from the threshold of runway 11, about 225 feet south of the middle marker. 
cutting a swath of trees at 39 degrees below horizontal at the wreckage site. So in other words, they were at a 39 degree angle downward as they hit the ground, which is really exaggerated. Most times airplanes don't dip more than 10 degrees below level. 39 meant they were, they were at a pretty good angle downward. However, most of the metal of the airplane had melted or reduced to a powder-like substance. Jesus. But there were still other large pieces intact at the crash site. Several brush fires burned around the wreckage site for some time before firefighters could put them out. No evidence of an in-flight fire, though. The crest of the hill was at about 894 feet above sea level. The wreckage site was at 880 feet above sea level, so only 14 feet below the top of the hill. But the trees in the area of the crash were measured at about 42 feet tall for a total of 922 feet above sea level. But the U.S. Department of Agriculture Forest Service estimated the trees were 71 feet tall before being cut by the airplane. Oh, Jesus. The highest trees on the hill were measured at 944.5 feet above sea level at the treetops which was 290 feet below what should be the minimum descent altitude that the airplane should have been at for the middle marker, or MDA. The flaps and landing gear were found in a fully extended position, and the airplane had come to rest in an inverted attitude. So the airplane was likely upside down when it hit the ground. What? Yep. That doesn't even make sense. Well, think about it. They lost the leading edge of the right wing, as well as several flap functions of the right wing, and they likely began to lose a lot of control, and the airplane rolled to the right inverted before impacting the hill. So it was after they struck trees that they inverted? Yep. So were they just too low? We'll find out. I feel like that would be the only way they'd strike the trees. You're not wrong. Yeah, you're not wrong. (laughs) (laughs) It did say the top of the trees were 290 feet before the minimum descent altitude, which was the marker for the middle marker um, on plates. I'll explain it. But yeah, I'll let you... I'll let you explain that. Explain that. So let's just get into the investigation, shall we? In reviewing the flight crew's records, investigators found that the crew had adequate rest prior to flying, so fatigue was not a factor. Um, The captain had a 20-hour rest period, and the first officer had 18. Both pilots were also familiar with Huntington Airport, so they knew what they were doing, and they knew that this airport had no glide slope. So what happened? Both black boxes were recovered from the accident plane, and they proved to be crucial tools in this investigation. The flight data recorder, or the FDR, showed that the flight crew had a smooth, controlled descent, for the most part, meaning there wasn't a runaway autopilot that they were dealing with. The plane had captured what it thought was a glide slope, but it was on the wrong autopilot nav select setting, which the captain then changed after he was like, why did, what, there's no glide slope. What is it talking about? Right. Except in a very... I think the CVR tried to capture his southern accent. Ah, I see. I'm not gonna try. Nope, me neither. (laughs) So this did not contribute to the crash. He also exclaimed that the autopilot felt a little sluggish, but there wasn't anything on the FDR to indicate what he was talking about. Something else that was found was they descended below a specific altitude called the Minimum Descent Altitude, or MDA. This is an altitude reference used during non-precision approaches specifically, and you can't descend below that altitude until you have made visual contact with the runway. And in this case, that altitude was 400 feet above the airport. The flight path garnered from the FDR indicated that the descent through MDA occurred two miles away from the airport. So had they made visual contact at that point? In the 10 seconds before they passed through the MDA, the cockpit voice recorder, or CVR, recorded the captain and the first officer discussing seeing the glow of lights through the bottom layer of the cloud they were in, maybe prompting the captain to descend. 
This descent through the clouds was confirmed by witnesses who saw the plane leave the clouds. At this point, the only limitations to visuals were fog, light rain, and smoke from the refinery that was, and is, two miles from the airport. And this refinery also emits light. And this was suspected to have been part of the problem. If the flight crew had visually caught the ALS, or approach lighting system, while they still had the lights from the refinery in the view, this would have caused an optical illusion that the lights were at the same height, even though there was a 300-foot height difference between the ALS lights and the lights of the refinery. This would have maintained after passing the refinery, so the crew would have a mental image of themselves 300 feet higher than they actually were. However... The remaining evidence nixes that idea, as there was no evidence that they ever saw the ALS or any part of the runway. If the aforementioned optical illusion had occurred, they would have immediately descended further and more rapidly, but they didn't. Plus, they spoke of seeing lights, but they didn't say ALS lights, so investigators assumed that it was visually obvious between crew members in the cockpit that they saw the approach lights and didn't feel the need to call it out and used nonverbal cues. Now, I'm going to go through part of the CVR and FDR that led investigators to a vital conclusion. Dun, dun, dun. Dun. At 7.35 and 6.8 seconds is when this occurred. The first officer said, we're 200 above. Investigators took this to mean 200 feet above MDA. The charter coordinator, the third person in the cockpit, said, bet it'll be a missed approach. He probably said this because they were so close to the MDA, but didn't have the runway in sight. The first officer then said 400 which is MDA. The captain said, that the approach? And the first officer said, yeah. This was the acknowledgement that they had reached MDA without the runway in sight. All available evidence henceforth indicates that they made for a missed approach, which meant that they were going to try again. This was confirmed by witnesses, recorders, and the swath in the trees that all indicate they had stopped descending and added power. Moreover, the first officer started calling out speeds and numbers rather than in reference to bugs. Do you want to explain that real quick? Yeah. So he started calling out speeds and numbers and the altitudes and numbers. Bugs are the indicators you can actually set on an instrument. So literally physically on the dial, there's a little knob and it adjusts with a little indicator that you can set where you want that reference speed to be. Basically, you're watching that needle as it gets to that point, you know you've hit your target. That is your target speed, your target altitude. But instead, he started calling out specifics. So instead of saying like bug and 12 or bug and 5, which he had done previously, he called out 126, I think is what it was. Yep. This is usually what happens during a go around or a missed approach. From all of this, the NTSB concluded that the crew had no idea they actually were below the MDA. They thought they were near it, but didn't know they descended below it. So someone wasn't looking at the altitude, the, alt the, the instrument that reads your actual altitude. However... TBD. Okay, no, you can't say that, because if they didn't know that they were below the minimum required, and they also tried to add power, I guess I'm not quite sure how they even hit the trees to but begin here's, with. But here's the weird thing. They actually were very conscious of their altitude. Then was... I, I guess I don't understand how they even hit the trees then. Exactly. Neither did investigators. <laughs> um, actually, they were 300 feet below MDA at this point. Yeah, they were 300 feet below where they were supposed to be. So was there something wrong with the instrument on the plane itself? Let me get into it. Okay. <laughs> That's going to be on a t-shirt someday. <laughs> it has to be at this point. So the NTSB concluded two possible reasons, but were unable to conclusively point to one or the other. In one instance, the crew could have been using barometric altimeters and vertical speed indicators to monitor the rate of descent, and these could have been feeding them bad data. If a static system error occurred, 
it would have shown a higher than actual altitude and a shallower than actual rate of descent, which the captain would have compensated for by descending and descending more steeply. There were, in fact, several instances where the descent was steepened, so steep in fact that he actually overshot the altitude he was trying to reach and had to adjust gradually. We have discussed in the past that sometimes during a crash, the altimeter will leave a mark indicating the altitude at the time of the crash. In this instance, the captain's altimeter showed 300 feet higher than it actually was. Yep. So when he impacted, the literally the dial indicated 300 feet higher. However, this could have actually been due to impact forces making it look like 300 feet higher. They could not conclusively say. Right. Finally, all of the first officer's callouts in altitude were 200 feet higher than they should have been. Now, if this is what happened, this also would have affected the airspeed instruments, but they all seem to be fairly reconciled with each other. What the speeds were that he was calling out were actually their speeds. The board said that a static system error still could have occurred, and the airspeed inaccuracy could have been offset by another problem in the pitot system. But the NTSB doesn't know how that would have happened. Right. Quote, in this connection, it should be noted that long-term research is underway to determine whether flight and weather conditions can lead to information from instruments connected to the static system. They also said until this phenomenon can be proven, they can't conclude that a static system error is what happened. So it could have, but what they don't What does it know. mean by s- the static system? It's just the barometric altitude system. There could have been a problem with it. Right. So you have a pitot system and you have a static system. Both of them are tested usually simultaneously because those are the two systems that give the airplane true altitude and speed data. The static system doesn't require airflow right? to figure it out. Whereas the pitot system, by definition, it's a tube sticking out of the plane that takes in pressure data. So you need to be moving for it to work. Whereas the static system, you could just be like on a hot air balloon and it would work. So they chose to just look at the static system or did they not have a pitot system? So they had both. So did they not double check it with the pitot system? So the two systems would have been feeding different data. The pitot system is more attached to the velocity. And so if there was an issue with the altimeter system, it would have affected velocity. But if there was also a problem with the pitot static system, it would have compensated for that. So the velocity actually showed correctly, but the altitude didn't. Which is why they're a little confused, because in theory, they should correct themselves. So they don't, they can't confirm if that's what happened. They didn't have enough data at the time to say this could have happened. But they didn't have enough data saying this didn't happen. So let's go to the other option, shall we? The second instance for the unrecognized descent was that the first officer could have been using the radio altimeter, which could have said they were higher than they were actually. The radio altimeter works by using basically echolocation. It sends a signal to the ground and waits for it to bounce back. This theory was supported by the fact that several times the first officer used above-the-ground altitude callouts, as in a thousand feet above the ground, which is exactly what the radio altimeter reads, and he had no reason to believe that it was incorrect from the barometric altimeter, which reads altitude. The reason this could be a problem is if the ground was uneven, which it was. This is West Virginia. There's hills. Everywhere. Aren't they in the Appalachians? Yes. So it is unwise. This would have made the... So if you're flying above flat ground, you can use the radio altimeter, and it will correlate directly with the barometric altimeter. But if you're over uneven terrain, it can mess you up. Really badly, it turns out. say you're over a valley, and your radio altimeter reads 100 feet above the ground. Well, your altitude 
relative to the airport that's at the top of the valley would actually be zero. But if you don't know there's a valley below you, you think you're 100 feet above the airport. Does that make sense? Yes. But if that were the case and they knew that they were in the Appalachians, why would he use the radio altimeter anyway? So, Southern Airways training distinguished between using the radio altimeter over level terrain versus a regular terrain, but the operating manual did not. That's the thing that's in the cockpit with him. It says it is a vital instrument when landing a plane. You should be using it. Why wouldn't you use it? Because you're next, you're like under, above mountains, and it doesn't work the same way? Yeah, so right. the tra- the training says one thing, but the operating manual that's made by the airline and that's sitting in the cockpit says something different. That's stupid. That That's a definite company error thing. Mm-hmm. It is suspected that if this situation were the case, where the first officer was using the radio altimeter, he would have been following the manual rather than training. Now, the captain should have been using his barometric altimeter during approach and should have been aware of disparities between that and the first officer's callouts. And it is, quote, difficult to explain why these disparities were not detected. It is possible he was also using his radio altimeter, or he was not using either altimeter and was just relying on the first officer's callouts. He also could have just not noticed, I guess? There are several things barring this theory, though. For one, it is hard to accept that such qualified and experienced crew members would rely solely on a radio altimeter over knowingly uneven terrain. For two, it's also hard to believe that there would be a dual human error, and that was what was required for this theory to mesh with what actually happened. But that doesn't mean it didn't. Lastly, the calculated descent rates from the callouts don't match the FDR. But that's not to say this whole theory isn't possible. So before I get to probable cause and findings, which Nix will actually do first, the NTSB wanted to make a rather specific comment. The captain had many resources to help him figure out the descent profile. Quote, the pilot had little, if any, information av- instantly available to him regarding the elevation and character of the terrain below the aircraft or the flight path related thereto. They basically used this statement as justification for recommending a glide slope to be installed, which Huntington Airport did after- before the report was released. After its installation, the NTSB said, In the view of the apparent success of the non-standard glide slope at Huntington, it is unfortunate that such an installation was not made sooner. However, the experience gained with this installation should provide a basis for possible application to other airports where standard installation criteria cannot be met without major construction. So prior to this incident, incident um, Huntington had actually been negotiating installing a glide slope since like 1957, I think it said. But... It was A, new technology, B, and it, re- it required a lot of major construction to install. It was very expensive and very, very difficult to justify that much work, basically. But after the crash, it was pretty justified. Yeah. And it was actually a period of time where this was relatively rampant. This was a, the FAA recognized, and there's actually a, several uh, letters throughout this uh, report that talk about how the FAA recognized that controlled flight into terrain problems on approach were prevalent at the time. Though I don't think they had the term coined at this point. No, CFIT was not coined yet. However, they were talking about, like, just flight into terrain, basically. Which is what this was. They flew into the ground not knowing that that's where the ground was. Yep. I'm still lost as to why they hit the trees. Turns out, so are they. Yep. There's too little evidence to prove exactly what happened, but they suspect... Quite a few things. Basically, it was instrument related. Yeah. Somewhere or another, it had to be if they were 
try if they were doing what they were supposed to and using their instruments in the cockpit. Either one altitude system was messed up or the other one was. Long right. story short. What I found intriguing was the fact that the first officer made several different altitude callouts. Yep. So he was pretty inconsistent. He was. So he called out 400, which would have been 400 above the airfield altitude, your landing altitude, which would have put them at MDA or minimum descent altitude, which, by the way, was 1240 feet above sea level. And if they had been at that altitude, then they would have been fine. They would have cleared the hill. However, 10 seconds later, when they were beginning their missed approach, he calls out 126. Hundred. So that means that meant they were suddenly a hundred above their altitude. Like he suddenly realized that he was calling out the wrong altitudes. The NTSB did put a footnote at one of the pages. I don't know if you saw it, but when he said hundred, first of all, in the transcript, mm -hmm. it's in all caps. It is. So he was screaming it because he suddenly realized they were only a hundred above the airfield, and there Though, was a hill. What the footnote says is they don't know if he meant altitude or velocity. Right. So. Because they were also likely losing speed. And they would have stalled at 100 knots. So either way, it's very confusing, but he was calling out how he noticed a big problem. But it was far too late because that was right at the moment of impact. Okay. So they were just as lost as we were. Also, I'm just looking at the transcript. The sounds of impact began six seconds prior to the end of the recording. That is a long time to be going through trees and inverting. It is. That is a horrifying six seconds of some people's lives. It is. Especially since they weren't going so fast, so they were probably awake when this happened. Yep. Oh, yeah. They Very were anticipating so. landing. Yeah. Yep. And they were on descent, so that sucks. It does. Do you have any questions otherwise? Uh, not really. I just, I'm a little, I don't know, I'm at a loss for how two experienced pilots couldn't figure out they were too low, but... Fog, clouds, rain... Smoke. Disorientation. And maybe poor instrumentation. And no glide slope. Because the whole time they were in the clouds, and it was at night, they never made visual contact with the airport, at least not that the investigators could prove. So they Which never also, saw the airport. So my my other problem is, is when he called 400, right? Which mm -hmm. would, would be the minimum altitude, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. Why they didn't just increase power to get out of there to do a go around. Well, they did. They right did. at that moment. Actually, that's when they called a missed approach because they never saw the runway at that point. But they weren't actually at 400. They were 300 feet below that. So they were only at they were at only 100 feet above the ground, which the hill was too. Because trees were at 70 feet. Is that what you said? The trees were 71 feet above the hill. Yep. However, they were, I think, 100, just a little over 100 and some feet above the airfield altitude. So there's that. I don't know. I feel like at that point, something went wrong when they were descending from the clouds then. Yep. Clearly. Somehow they missed the actual MDA, and they don't know how. Investigators were never able to determine how. Not conclusively. They gave possibilities as to what could have happened, but they couldn't conclusively say one way or the other how it happened. This is obviously before the development of the ground proximity warning system, right? We'll get into that, too. All right. After this brief message. Okay. So, findings. So, there were actually 23 findings in this report, and they don't really help clear up much of the confusion. Um, but I managed to narrow this down to an anti-Dion complicate as many of these as possible so that they are understandable. Yes. I kind of hate you for using that phrase. I am. We are going to continue to use it. Uh, yeah. You're just going to have to get over it. I am it. wholeheartedly going to use that phrase as often as possible. Uh -huh. 
So they found that the instrument approach aids at Huntington provide lateral but not vertical guidance to the runway and were working properly at the time, which was proven, and we already discussed that. They had no actual vertical reference except what was on the approach plates, which are the literally the manuals they have in the cockpit paper manuals. The MDA or minimum decision or minimum descent altitude was 1240 feet above sea level and 400 feet above the airport and the same used by all scheduled airline traffic at Huntington and were adequate for the intended operation of the flight had they been used as intended. The weather in the approach area was worse than that reported than the reported weather at the airfield. They found that no malfunction or defect of the structure or flight controls of the airplane prior to impact were found. They found that there was no evidence of defect or contamination of the static system, so they couldn't prove that the static system was a problem. They found that the captain was using the autopilot throughout the approach, and there was no evidence of a failure of the autopilot system. They found that, based on cockpit conversations, the flight crew was very familiar with the approach to Huntington, as well as the minimum descent altitude. They found that the crew deviated from optimal approach procedures in several aspects, but it is unknown if this had an effect on the accident, as they did have altitude awareness according to the cockpit conversations. So there's a few things that they did differently on the approach. However, it's unknown if any of that had anything to do with the actual accident itself, because they were calling out altitudes. They found that the flight descended below the minimum descent altitude, about two miles from the runway, and didn't initiate a go-around until 300 below MDA. The first officer's call of 400 was construed to mean that an altimeter indicated the aircraft was at MDA, when it actually wasn't. They found that the crew was unaware that the aircraft had descended through the actual MDA, and they found that the crew sighted the glow from the refinery but never had a visual of the airport. They found that the probable reason that the descent went unrecognized was not determined, but the two most likely causes were a a malfunction of the static system, or a reliance by the crew on the radio altimeter as a primary altitude reference while executing an approach over uneven terrain. And finally, they found the accident may have been avoided if there had been a non-standard glide slope, which was later installed. Basically everything we discussed. Just I think we covered it. it pretty well. Yeah, Not really to don't... toot my own horn, but... Yeah, they really don't clear this up at all. They just say exactly what we said. Which is kind of horrible for... The passengers' families. It is. It's unfortunate. So, the probable cause. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of this accident was the descent below minimum descent altitude during a non-precision approach under adverse operating conditions without visual contact with the runway environment. The board has been unable to determine the reason for this descent, although the two most likely explanations are A. Improper use of cockpit instrumentation data, or B. An altimetry system error. So, now do you want to hear my opinion? Sure. Okay, so here's what I think happened. And Speculation? Yes, my speculation, and this may or may not be true at all. However, they called out the glowing lights from the refinery... I think they knew it was the refinery. I don't think they did, actually. My opinion is I think they thought they were already over the approach lighting system, the ALS. But they would have descended further than they did if that was the case. And that's the thing. They thought the same thing. Hence, the pilot put the airplane into a steeper descent, tried to get below the clouds, then suddenly realized those were not the approach lights. They called a missed approach and had no time to react. That's my suspicion. I, so here's my, my issue too, cause that, what I don't understand is, uh, so what I understand from 
you know, landing at DIA and stuff like that, his landing lights are super, super bright. Yes. And they do that in case there's adverse weather conditions. Yes. And maybe they weren't as bright back in the 1970s. I don't know. But if they could see the refinery lights... Why couldn't they Why see the ALS? Why couldn't they see the Yeah, you see what I mean? Okay, so here's my rebuttal to that. It might not be true entirely, um, but I'm going to show you a map real quick. My suspicion on that, because they weren't close enough, they were still a mile from the runway, which is barely where the approach lighting system begins. And it was on the other side of the hill that they were approaching rapidly. So they couldn't see them. They were below the hill. Okay. For one. And two, they really thought, I think they really thought that the glow that they were seeing through the clouds they were in from the refinery were the approach lights because they Here's are Here's my bright. problem with that. If they thought it was the approach lights, why didn't they... They talked about seeing the rabbit, the blinking lights. The refinery doesn't have a blinking ball of light directing them towards the runway. Correct. It's a steady glow. Which is why I can't say this is absolute, because I don't know. I don't know. Also, why is the light so bright that it would cause an issue? That's what I'm trying to show you. This refinery is huge. It is huge. So, that's the airport. This is the refinery. Yeah, so it is very, very big. And They crashed here. About halfway between. So they were already far past the refinery. Yes, which means they would have been relatively close to Mm -hmm. the ALS. Yep. So, okay, it might have been, like, I could see your point where they'd be like, yeah, like, that looks like the the light that could come from the airport, right? Right. But then at one point, it probably would have been like, oh, well, wait, that's not, we're not close enough, or I I don't see the runway. Right. I don't know. I just... And after they passed over the refinery, they still didn't see blinking lights. Like, that's my biggest thing is... Right. There's a rabbit. They knew about it. Which is the point that they considered a missed approach, and then they attempted, but they were too low. They were too low, yeah. And you have to realize, they were only two miles from the airport when they descended below the MDA, and that was about just after they passed over the refinery. And that actually, they would have been covering a distance of about a mile every 20 to 25 seconds. So that's really fast. They had very little time to think about it in two miles. Yeah. I guess. I don't know. I'm just having a lot of feelings. I get that. About... My, My thing is, if the refinery was the problem, then... There needs to be something done about how bright the light is from the refinery. So Good luck with that one. Right. And at this point, once they put the glide slope in, that fixed that problem. Well, yes. The glide slope, too. Yeah. So that completely probably fixed the problem. And hence, the refinery had to do nothing about it. Because the refinery obviously probably takes precedence over the airport. The refinery makes an, a massive amount of money and is big for the community. Still is today. Yes. And I agree with that. However, if it's causing planes to not, like... To have a false sense of where they're going. Right. That's my problem. It's like those lights, the Christmas lights people put on their house that are green and red that you should never put on your house, by the, the way. The lasers. The lasers. Yeah. Because those, if you have them pointed the wrong direction, can cause real issues. Having been in a plane flying... A- aviation. At, yeah. Having been on a plane flying at relatively low altitude around Christmas time at night, I can tell you, you can see those lasers that are like, those little things that are like, oh, they're great. They light up. Christmas lights. I don't over have your to house. put lights on my house. Right, you just put them in your front yard, and they project little laser green and red lights. Well, it turns out those also go past your house and into pilots' eyes. By the way, and while they're not as dangerous as quite literal like super laser pointers, like people like to do more often than you think, um, 
they are still pretty dangerous. I mean, they, they can distract pilots a lot. And I can tell you, they are very visible. I've seen them, and it's, it is something else. It's, it's weird. Yeah, so don't, don't buy those. Don't put it on your house. I prefer not, yeah. Side tangent, sorry. Side tangent. Well, I mean, kind of. Kind of. uh, You know. Vaguely relevant. Vaguely, yes. So let me do recommendations. Cool. And then we'll discuss this a little more. Different stuff, though. So the recommendation section is a lot like the one that you did in your Miranda Sode, a little plug here, for March, in that it didn't have numbered recommendations. What it had were just written out paragraphs of what the yeah. recommendations And some of them were. were like, the FAA did this. Right. And then they did this. Right. And then the, they did this. I'm like, I don't need that. I just exactly. need to know what the board said they should do. Right. They're very long-winded about it. So here's the four that I took out of their recommendations. They recommended that more coordination between the pilots should happen during crucial approach procedures, which today is known as crew resource... Crew, crew resource management. Crew resource management. Bum, ba, bum. Go figure. Comes up. Often. Yep. Like every episode. And they recommended developing and integrating automated glide slope equipment for area navigation in tandem with that. So basically saying that the area needs to have more instrument-related approach equipment on hand. So the glide slope, for example. They recommended testing, implementing, and eventually making standard heads-up display systems. FYI, these are still not standard, and it's an airline's choice to have them or not. Heads-up displays are quite literally... Projections. Projections you can put... Yeah, they're like little screens, clear glass screens you can put in front of your face, in front of between you and the window, that gives you your full attitude, altitude, and speed indicators. If you've never seen one, look it up. Look up, like, 737 heads-up dis- you know, heads display, and you will find these the pictures of this really cool device and what it does. And they were already working on implementing them because they were already in in fighter jets at the time. And so it wasn't untold that it couldn't be done in an airliner, and they started working on it. And they're very much in use today in a lot of airliners. However, they're still not standard. Um, They're still not required. And they're very expensive for a lot of airlines that just can't afford it. They recommended altitude warning systems be developed, implemented, and required. GPWS. Right, ground proximity warning systems, exactly. They recommended basically developing a ground proximity warning. And this was already being developed, by the way, and was still very much uh, a prevalent thing because of several other incidents, some that we've discussed. They also recommended further research on static system contamination based on environmental factors, just like you said earlier. Which like, I mentioned. Yeah, like what? how does the weather outside and storms... Affect and the such. measured speed and... And altitude. That stuff. Yeah. So those were the recommendations I took out of that, basically. Yeah. So this accident was classified as controlled flight into terrain, or CFIT, but the term was not developed until the late 70s. So this accident is categorized as that, though it was not called that at the time. Right. So now we get into the deeper side of this, which is that this affected people's lives. And this was a sports-related accident, and is still the worst sports-related accident in U.S. history. Really? It is. Um, More than the one in the Andes? In the U.S. Oh, sorry. This is the worst in U.S. history. This is not the worst in the world. Misheard. So, and this meant a lot to a lot of people. It meant a whole lot to West Virginians, by the way. By the way, we don't have any West Virginian listeners right now, so you can contact people in West Virginia. And let them know. And let them know. It turns out there's not a whole lot of those. (laughs) 
<laughs> no offense, West Virginia, you're just not that populated. And Wyoming's worse, though. Yeah, Wyoming's way we worse. We also there's, don't have any listeners in Wyoming. There's a lot of states that are actually worse, but but uh, it's kind of true. And in any case, the unfortunate thing about this is that this was not even the first accident of a major football team having crashed. Nope. As it turns out, Wichita State's team... Which team? Their, football team? Yes, their football team. Crashed here. In Colorado. Just 43 days before the Marshall University crash. God. And it killed 14 players and 31 people overall. Yeah, I think it was only half the team, though. Yeah. In the Southern Airways crash, it was... (laughs) Well, it wasn't all of the players or all the coaching, but it was a lot of people. It was 37 members of the Marshall University Thundering Herd football team as well as eight members of the coaching staff and 25 boosters, as well as the other, the city council, the legislator, and the physicians that I mentioned. So I think they're included in the 35 members of the team, or the 37 members of the team, 37 members of the Marshall University. So it was a lot of people. This was really impactful, because it also had a lot of the coaching staff, eight members of the major coaching staff. And uh, this really this really upended their football uh, team. Season. Their football season, and... And such. And when when did they crash? This was in November of nineteen seventy. Oh, so they were kind of in the middle of their season. They were middle end. Middle end, yeah. So I don't know how long college football goes to. If it's anything like today, it's kind of like middle end. Makes sense. So so this was really bad, and like I said, West Virginians took this very seriously. How seriously? They had on the day after the crash a memorial service with the, in an eighty five hundred seat veteran memorial field house. With several moments of silence, of course, remembrance and prayers. But the following Saturday, they filled an 18,000-seat stadium for a memorial. Jeez. Oh, my God. Just you wait, because this gets even crazier. Oh, dear. So, of course, around the country, people were expressing their condolences, and this was really big. This was big news, not just in West Virginia, but, of course, in the country. And it was still really big in West Virginia. Huge, as a matter of fact. Classes at Marshall, of course, along with numerous events and shows, uh, were canceled. The football team, of course, canceled their games. Government offices were closed. A mass funeral was held, and many of the dead were actually buried together because they couldn't identify bodies. I was going to ask. Yeah. But they went... This just gets crazier and crazier because there are so many memorials to this crash, it's unbelievable. So, obviously they had to redo their entire team, and the most recent memorial that I've seen... Well, they're they're actually still working on one. The most recent tribute I've seen for this was in November... On November 14th of 2013, so an anniversary of the crash. This was the first anniversary of the crash that the football team had played an away game, and they wore the number 75 on their helmets for the 75 people killed in the crash. In 2013? In 2013. So okay. it was pretty recent. Well, However, seven years ago. Yeah, but still, that's pretty recent. And they're still working on one. So, list of memorials. They appointed the the president and vice president of the university, appointed a memorial committee soon after the crash. That committee created a plaque and memorial garden at the stadium, granite cenotaph at the Spring Hill Cemetery. A memorial stunt center was designated at the memorial as well. And then, in 1972, a memorial fountain was dedicated at the entrance of the memorial student center. Every year on the memorial, on the uh, anniversary of the crash, the fountain is shut off for the season, for the winter season, during a commemorative ceremony. And it does not come on again until the following spring. They do a ceremony, of course, on campus every year. 
There are several movies that have been made about this. There was another bronze memorial that was dedicated to them. It was a statue. A memorial plaque was dedicated at the crash site in 2006. I think that one is on the highway overlooking the crash site. I don't think it's actually at the crash site because it's in the middle of the forest. Right. That's true. Another plaque memorializing the 1970 Marshall football team was unveiled at the East Carolina University on the same day. So that was the stadium they were playing at the day they... Yeah, the they were coming home from there. Yeah. After playing in North Carolina. Yep. So there's two films, like I said. There's Marshall University, Ashes to Glory, which was a documentary. And then there was a full-fledged film dramatization of the events that followed this, the rebuilding of the team, that stars Matthew McConaughey. And it's called We Are Marshall. So this was a big deal. This was a really big deal, obviously. It affected a lot of people's lives, and it changed a lot of things. They they had to de- redevelop the team completely from freshman players on the junior varsity team that had no idea. Some of them had never played football before. Those poor kids. I know. But they actually managed to win two games that following year, which was pretty amazing. They won, I think you said, their first... Their first home game back, I think. Yeah, which is pretty crazy. So... Yeah, this was this was really impactful and obviously something you would never want to happen again. Our condolences to the families of those people because I'm sure Absolutely. they're still alive. Yep. Because that's horrible. All these and they are young people too. Yep. Because you know they're in college. So a lot of parents lost children. I'm sure boyfriends, girlfriends lost their significant others. So as a matter of fact, I was reading numbers. Let me see if I can find them. And I don't know if this is true or not. It says, 70 children lost at least one parent in the crash, with 18 of them left orphaned. Oh. Yeah, and parent, like, coaching staff and, and yeah. city officials died. And and by the way, this was the only chartered flight that the team had that season, too. Of course it was. And just to say, I think it a little bit of it was pilot error, a little bit of it was maintenance error. Not maintenance, uh, mechanical failure. Because um, I do think it had something. It had to do with something with issues with instruments in the cockpit. I don't. Yeah. Exactly. I don't. I don't think the pilots intentionally realized that they were as low as they were. Right. Which it sounds like they didn't. Obviously. They had no idea. Yeah, they had no and idea. And so they hit the trees, and it was too late to do a go around. Yeah, exactly. So I don't want to put blame on because the pilots also died. Don't want to put blame on the pilots because it it's not a hundred percent their fault. And. I'm sure there was some speculation about that after the crash happened, which there usually always is with stuff like this. But our condolences to those families of the people who were affected by this, because that's horrible. Yep. There's another note here, but I'm not sure if this one's true either, but a memorial bell tower is being planned for location on West Virginia 75 near Exit 1 along Interstate 64. This was a big deal to West Virginians. Yes, it apparently. Was. <laughs> obviously, obviously, if you go do a quick Google of this, you'll find out that I'm mostly pulling that from the the Wikipedia page, the memorial stuff, because there's so much different information about them. I'm like, I'm, I just want the general idea, and I'm sorry that I'm just verbatim reading like Wikipedia pages. I get that's not a reliable source, but like, but this, it's a consolid, point, it's a consolidation of sources, right? More the point I'm trying to get at is like they really took this seriously. Like you can tell because there's so much information on this one particular crash with the memorials that followed, because this meant a lot to a lot of people. Yeah. So, on a slightly not-so-sad note... Let's get a little out of the morbidity. <laughs> yeah. So, we did a... Like, I get It wasn't an experiment. What was it called? I don't know. 
a look at our listen- listenership yesterday while we were at brunch. Yeah. Like fancy people that we are not. Fancy. We did the typical millennial thing and went and got brunch. <laughs> On a Saturday. We did not get avocado toast. Oh, no. We don't. don't that's don't not really that. a thing here. No. I mean, I've made it for myself at home. But Neither I don't, me I don't... nor any of my friends eat that on a regular basis. No. No, but Nick did the very Colorado thing and got a breakfast burrito. Shut up. It was really good. <laughs> anyway. You always get a breakfast burrito. Yeah, smothered in green chili. It's delicious. Come anyway. to Colorado. So here are the states we do not have listeners in. And we would like you friends who are listening in the 36th. 39, 39, 39, 39 states we do have and the district of Columbia because the district DC is not included in the states. But those of you who have friends in these states, like get the word out to them so we can Please. Yeah, we're, we're trying get to, knock to all out, 50, trying to knock out all the states because we actually have a lot of countries, but we need, we also want to make sure we're represented here. Yeah. We so, appreciate all our listeners from the other countries though. Yes. Very thank much you. So. We have thank more. you. That's amazing actually. Yeah. So, here are the states we'd like listeners from, in alphabetical order. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah, they're in alphabetical order. Alaska, Delaware, Hawaii, Idaho, Louisiana, Mississippi, Nebraska, New Hampshire, Rhode Island, West Virginia, and Wyoming. So, obviously, if you're an American listening to this, you're going, yeah, all of those make sense, because nobody lives there. <laughs> and that's not entirely true. I mean, actually, Hawaii the most... has a lot of people. Kind so does of. Louisiana. Yeah, Louisiana is the one that actually surprises me the most. I'm not going to lie. There's a lot of people there. Derek, get on it, my dude. Derek, yeah. get your family to listen. <laughs> you know who you are. I need to send him a message. We're calling you out right Derek. here, right now. But also, just like, get the word out. Spread it to people who are in those states. And everyone else in your state, too. But we really want to get all 50 states, so... We'll and have the, a miniature celebration. And the District of Columbia. But we're gonna be, we already have District of Columbia, so... We're going to be working hard to uh, spread the word... Uh, online as well too i know we haven't been super great at social media and stuff but we are actually going to be working on that a lot i have some ideas and by we we mean nick yep yeah hi (laughs) i'm gonna be working on that as much as possible as well as my mother thanks mom thanks for sonora doing (laughs) she's been helping us a lot and she makes uh some of our facebook posts and and such and so we we are uh actively going to be working to try to get some out outreach and and we want people you know the number of times lately that i've heard from people in person that are like oh i didn't i didn't think i'd really be interested in this or i didn't think it would be interesting and then i started listening and now i'm hooked like kara said that but also like i've heard that from like 12 other people and it, it really is like that's the same story i hear about aviation in general from so many people and i just i feel like there's so many people that don't know that they would really like this kind of stuff until they start listening. and it, it Miranda and I are guilty of that. Completely. Yeah. Completely. <laughs> That's why we started this podcast. I've been passionate about this stuff since, you know, like birth, but... <laughs> Don't over-exaggerate yourself now. <laughs> Pretty much. That's how it goes. But, you know, thanks, Dad. Um, <laughs> <laughs> He's probably also listening. Eventually. Maybe. I, but in any case, I mean, there's that, and we just, yeah, I think, I think it, it's important for people to gain knowledge, learn about this stuff, and don't just be there, participate, like, understand it. You know, this is the world that happens around you. Don't take flying for granted. Be interested in it. I think it's important. our podcast, as most of you know, is purely based on facts from the NTSB reports. Or other aviation investigatory sources. Like the air crash investigations or, you know... But we usually pull, series. We pull from as many reports as we possibly can. I mean, in every single one, first line, 
we usually say is, oh, does this have a report? Yeah, they all do. For if it doesn't part. have a report, we have a really hard time justifying doing Yeah, we an really episode. generally don't cover them because it's so hard to prove things. There's so many, like, made-up stories about so many of these crashes out there. It's so hard to determine what's actually fact. Speaking of, if anyone can get your hands on the report for Lanza 508, please send it to us. We would really like to have we it. We tried Apparently, doing that at a, one point, yeah, and it didn't work it out. It used to exist, and then the... the Website for Chile's uh, old or Peru's, yeah, yeah, sorry, Peru's old uh, reports was taken down. So if somebody has it, please send it to us. We really want to do an episode on that. Apparently, it's a it's a big thing. So it's it's a really big thing. Jen texted me one day and she's like, "What's the crash I'm not supposed to know about?" And I was like, "Tenerife." And she's like, "Oh, okay. So I can look at Lanza 508 because it appeared on my Facebook page." I'm like, yeah. "Yes, you can look at that." Yeah. Yeah. So. Okay, we're going to post episode now. Yeah, we are. Become a patron so you can listen to those. Yeah. We have a patron now. We have one, and it's Kara. Thanks, Kara. <laughs> <laughs> we know you're listening, so thank you. We appreciate it. We actually do. It means a lot. And yes, you get the title of being the first patron. And we just want it to go up from there, so participate, guys. Yeah. Check it out. Very, at the very least, we have a $2 tier where you can get ad-free episodes. We do see that there are a lot of people listening regularly, actually. We have, like, literally an hour after the episode releases when we wake up, there's already almost 50 listens, usually. 15. No, there was like 47 when I looked at 5.30 a.m. this week. What? Or it was like 6 a.m., I think. It yeah. might have been 6 a.m. because I looked when I woke up and it wasn't that much. Yeah. It was like as soon as I got to work, actually. It was like 6 a.m. Okay, that's we had like we had That's two hours in. Two hours from the release. We already have like almost 50, 50 listens first thing in the morning. So we see that there are regular listeners that listen right away. And then, of course, we get a lot more as the week goes on. But like, you know, that's that's amazing. There are people listening right away. And now we just want you to get more. We have more. There's come, more content. Come support us and get more. Miranda episodes, post episodes. Our post episodes are really fun. Um, we cuss and uh, and make <laughs> and jokes. We drink. And, and it's mostly conversations about things other than the crash, so that there's something a little more lighthearted that happens after this. There's you a can get to know reel. us. Our blooper reel is mostly my cat yeah. and me singing Batman. Didn't we do this at the end Batman. of the last episode? Probably. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> All right. Uh, check it out. You know, do what you can. Much appreciated. We'd like to get to the point where we can do live shows, which would be super cool. But that's a ways out. Uh, uh, yeah. Long ways out right now. <laughs> it has now. to pay for itself, and it, right now it's not doing Our primary that. goal right now, um, and we have this on our Patreon, is if we can get pledges up to $500 a month, we want to open a merchandise store online. Um, and that would also just help us reimburse the cost of everything we've got up to this also, point. Yeah, but I want merch, and we need money to I know, do that. I want merch, too. You guys can also suggest, like, merch stuff, too. Somebody start a post on our Facebook page and just discuss merch. We already know that Boopity Boop Research is going to be one. We'd like to be, yep. Uh, anti Dion complication. Anti Dion complication. I protest that one Too strongly. Too bad it is nope. going to happen. It's, sorry, it's forever part of this podcast. And we'll get into that. Yeah, then we'll get into another one. <laughs> we'll get into that. And people died. That was more of an early episodes thing. I'm, yeah. I'm, I haven't been able to say it recently because... None of this has really made me mad. Last week was a little stupid, but... Oh, I've got a couple that'll really make you mad No one someday. died last week, so... 
Yeah, I've got a couple of them that really make you mad someday. Great. Also, we're on a suggestion streak of people suggesting stuff. Yeah, and it's really great. We've actually, like, half our list right now is recommendations. It's Please pretty fantastic. Keep, keep them coming. Email us, Facebook us. We like hearing you guys be like, we love your podcast. Can you do these? And we'd like, yeah, here's when you can expect them. Slide into those DMs. Give us some recommendations. <laughs> Maybe not DMs. <laughs> Maybe not. I mean, you can on that's kind of how we it do works. have an instagram but... yeah i know but not not our personal ones i <laughs> uh, know just the we're i just talking i'm just instagram referencing the, our hard landings ones oh okay. yeah you don't know who we are anyways i'm sure you could probably figure out if you really wanted to but Your, don't yours is a little more obscure mine's not i don't know mine's my name good anyways. luck finding it i don't know if anyone knows my full name if you've if you've heard some of the post episodes eh. you may have heard it by mistake i can but... tell you it's pretty easy to figure out who we are yeah. Someday we'll probably just have to give up on that. Uh, we mainly started doing that so that when I got a job, they can't just look it up and like be like, oh, so you talk about plane crashes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah. All right. We we really need to end this episode. So. Yeah. Have a good week. We'll uh, talk to you next week. Have fun. Keep, Keep your airspeed speed up. Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings Podcast and on Twitter at Hard Landings Pod. Also, subscribe and leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you're using to listen. If you want to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi, and our social media is coordinated by Sonora. Catch you next time.